Good morning once again. Good to see everybody. A couple of weeks ago, in honor of the Christmas season, we started a four-part series which we've entitled The Story of Christmas. And the two previous titles in this series are as follows. The story begins with a promise, and the story continues with a prophecy. And that brings us to part three of the story of Christmas. The story contains a special progeny. You know, the dictionary defines the word progeny as a descendant or descendants of a person, a person who comes from a particular parent or family. You know, the story of Christmas is all about a very special family, the family of David. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had promised David that Messiah would come from his own family line and that he would sit on the throne of his father David forever. One of the scriptures that we are very familiar with this time of year, we hear it often, we see it on television and on Christmas cards and so on, comes out of Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, the promise that Messiah would be the center of David didn't really originate with David. Actually, it was first given to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, where God promised to Abraham that Messiah would eventually come from his line. Now, as God became more specific as to what family the Messiah would come from after Abraham, you see, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and uh, Isaac. And God says, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac your seed shall be called, seed being Messiah. Well, uh, Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. God says it would be through Jacob, Messiah will come. Jacob had 12 sons. And God chose Judah and said through Judah, Messiah would come, and eventually, of course, it said uh, through David. And as God became more and more specific as to what family Messiah would be born into, it allowed Satan to focus his attack more and more on that particular family. You see, the story of Christmas, guys, as we have said, is really the story of redemption, which means the messianic line, the family of redemption, became the main focus and target of Satan's attacks because Satan wanted to thwart the plan of God. You see, we've been saying for the last couple of weeks that the story of redemption really started in the Garden of Eden with a promise. A promise that God gave to mankind, which at that time was just two people, Adam and Eve. That someday he would send a Savior into the world who would crush the serpent's head, the language of Genesis 3. Which meant destroy the devil's authority over the human race. In essence, would take the world back from the devil, who is the God of this world at this present time. And bring a kingdom to this world where Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would reign over the whole earth. Now, as God was making this promise to Adam and Eve and to all their descendants, Satan was standing there listening. And he purposed in his heart to fight against God's plan of redemption with every resource at his disposal to keep the Savior from being born. And so the focus of his attack became the progeny or the family of God, the Messianic line. Which at one point, if you realize this, Satan was able to kill, through a very wicked queen mother, every descendant of the royal line, all except for one single heir. Let me read it to you. 2 Kings 11, verses 1 to 3, When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, Ahaziah was the king, 
uh, of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, the royal line. When she saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered. And she hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. And so he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. You understand what's being said here? The devil was able to wipe out all the royal line except for one heir, which by God's mercy and grace was hidden away, Joash, and eventually was brought out to take over the kingdom. I just want you to see the story of redemption as a war, a war that Satan declared on the Jewish people in general as they were chosen by God to be the instrument through which the Messiah would be born. Whether you're talking about Pharaoh ordering the death of the Jewish boys uh, in the book of Exodus, or Haman getting King Darius to sign a hasty decree in the book of Esther, that on a certain date all the Jews in the kingdom of Persia would be killed, or later than that of King Herod the Great in the Gospel of Matthew ordering all the Jewish boys born in Bethlehem two years old and under to be killed. The story of redemption from Genesis 3 to the birth of Christ is the story of Satan's war against God's Messiah to keep him from being born so he couldn't crush Satan's head and destroy his authority over the human race. Let me further show you how Satan tried to corrupt the Messianic line through one particular king actually to stop Messiah from being born, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew's book is actually called the Gospel of the King. And Matthew, being a Jew, a Levite, was writing primarily to the Jewish people, a Jewish audience, to present to Israel her long-awaited Messiah and King. Matthew begins his Gospel with a genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's safe to say that genealogies in the Bible don't excite or bless most of us who are Christians. In fact, I think most of us just kind of skip over these genealogies when we're reading the Bible. However, to the Jews, genealogies were not only important, listen, they were vital. You see, genealogies traced lineages through families and tribes. These were legal documents that proved property ownership. Remember, land in Israel was portioned according to tribes and then broken down further according to families. Each family needed their family genealogy to prove ownership of their land. But genealogies also establish, listen, the right of succession, as in the case of the priesthood and the monarchy. No man could legally occupy the office of a priest in Israel who could not trace his genealogy back to Aaron, or reign as king in Israel who could not trace his genealogy back to David. Now, Matthew wrote his gospel, as I said, to present to Israel Jesus as their king, which means He's going to have to prove genealogically that Jesus is qualified to be Israel's king. Or in other words, if you're going to present somebody as king of Israel, you better be able to prove, first of all, that they're a Jew, a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And secondly, that he is a descendant of David through Solomon, the royal line, which meant he had the legal right to rule in Israel as king. That's why Matthew starts out his gospel with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, listen, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As I said, if Matthew is going to prove that Jesus Christ 
is the Messiah, the King of Israel, he first needs to prove that Jesus was a Jew by tracing his lineage back to Abraham. Now, we all know from our study in Genesis that Abraham became the progenitor of the Jewish people by virtue of a covenant that God made with him that one day he would be the father of a great nation and that through his seed, singular, speaking of the Messiah, all the nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed because, as we know, the Jewish Messiah wasn't going to be just a savior to the Jewish people. He was going to be the savior of all mankind. We pick it up in verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Verse 3, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot... So now you're reading this going, what do I care? <laughs> and as a Gentile, I understand where you're coming from. But if you're Jewish... And you're waiting for the Messiah to be born. This is pretty interesting stuff. Very important. Okay. Verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now at this point again we need to understand that Matthew is tracing the lineage of Jesus through the royal line back to David. As we have already said, the royal line descended from David through his son, Solomon. By doing this, Matthew was proving that Jesus had the legal right to rule as king in Israel. You say, well, that's all well and fine. Great. But as we keep going through Matthew's genealogy, we get to one of David's descendants, a man named Jeconiah in verse 11, also known as Jehoiakim. And guys, Jehoiakim was so evil, so influenced by Satan, that God winds up cursing him and his descendants by saying, no descendant of Jehoiakim would ever sit upon the throne of David ever again. At this point, the devil must have thrown a party. <laughs> a Halloween party, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> because in his mind, he had won. He had won. The royal line had been cursed, which meant Messiah could not rule as king because God himself had said that no descendant of Jehoiakim would ever sit upon the throne of David. Satan at that point must have said, checkmate. Got him. I've won. No Messiah means no king. No king means no kingdom. No kingdom means nobody is going to take my rule from me. My kingdom will go on forever. I'll be the God of this world forever. Well, Satan celebrated a little his victory a little too quickly. So he didn't read the fine print. As you read the Gospels, you discover that Jesus actually had two genealogies, one in Matthew chapter 1 and the other in Luke chapter 3. Now, this has confused some people. They're different. And critics read both of them and say, the Bible is full of errors. Look at these two genealogies. They don't even match. That's right. They don't match in their entirety. They do match for some of it. So what's going on? In the Gospel of Matthew, you have the genealogy of Joseph. and Luke 3, you have the genealogy of Mary. Let me tell you how this works. The genealogy of Matthew's Gospel traces Jesus' genealogy back to David through the royal line of Solomon, the line that Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, descended from. We read in verse 16, And Jacob begot Joseph, listen, the husband of Mary, not the father of Jesus. 
the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. That's right. Jesus was born of Mary, but not of Joseph. Joseph was his stepfather, of course. His real father was God the Father. This means that the blood curse placed on Jehoiakim and his descendants, listen, a blood curse that Joseph bore was not transferred to Jesus because he was not a blood descendant of Joseph. And yet, and this is very important, as the adopted son of Joseph, all the rights of his adopted father were transferred to Jesus, which meant through Joseph, Jesus received the legal right to be king since Joseph descended from David through Solomon, the royal line. Now that's great, except when you read 2 Samuel 7, you realize that God promised David that one of his blood descendants would sit on his throne one day forever. What about that? Well, guys, you see, that's where Jesus' genealogy through Mary comes into play. You see, in Luke's gospel, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy back to David, but instead of going through Solomon, the royal line, and might I add the cursed line, he traces Jesus' genealogy back through Mary to David, back through Nathan. See? He goes from Mary to Nathan to David. Nathan, of course, was another son of David, a line that did not carry the blood curse. This allowed Jesus to be the literal blood descendant of King David without carrying upon himself the blood curse God put upon the royal line, starting with King Jehoiakim. You say, okay, very interesting. What has this got to do with me? Listen to me. You read these things. You know, it's easy to pick the nuggets off the ground. When you dig a little deeper in God's word, the nuggets become even more of a blessing, more precious. As you read this and you understand now what God has done, God made a promise that through David, one of his blood descendants would sit on his throne forever. Well, the royal line was the obvious thought, of course, because the king came from David. The royal line was through Solomon. But at one point, Solomon's line, when it got to Jeconiah or Jehoiakim, was cursed. That meant no other king, no other descendant could sit on David's throne. Now, if you're a Jew and you read this or you were there at that time, I'm sure they were devastated. Because in their minds, the Messiah could not be born now. Messiah could not come. He could never come and be king. God cursed the royal line not realizing that what Satan intended for evil, God is big enough to turn around and thwart the devil at every turn, right? God promised that one day a descendant of David, a blood descendant, somebody who had the legal right to rule, would reign on David's throne forever. Jesus inherited that right through Joseph, but since he was not Joseph's biological son, only his adopted son, the legal right passed to Jesus from Joseph to reign, but not the blood curse. But yet through Mary, his mother, through her lineage, traced back to David through Nathan, he was a blood descendant of David, but the blood curse did not apply to him. When I read things like that, guys, I get very excited because I realize that no matter how black things look at times, our God's bigger. God's promises will always be fulfilled. Hasn't God... I know this time of the year brings a lot of heartache and sorrow to a lot of people. There's a lot of people who get laid off of work at this time. I just talked to somebody yesterday. They've been laid off from their job. Sometimes bosses feel like they have to lay people off around the holidays. They just don't have to work. I understand why they do it, but it's still difficult on the people that get laid off. And there are some of you here this morning who are maybe looking at the next few weeks of not having a job, or maybe 
you've been laid off indefinitely, or some of you have just come from the doctor. I had a gentleman text me in our church last night and said uh, he was diagnosed with lymphoma. Please pray for me. I've got to go through a whole uh, body radiation. So a lot of people who are dealing with a lot of issues this time of year, things look pretty black. It's at these times we have to remember these things that we can focus on our God who is bigger than any problem. With God, nothing shall be what? Impossible. We have to keep reminding ourselves that our God's on the throne. He's going to take care of us. I was telling first service years and years ago. We were not in ministry that long, Cindy and I, and we had the, the kids were small. And we entered into the month of December, and honestly, we had no money to pay anything. No money. To, I don't know if the car broke down and we had to shell out money for that or what happened. But we had no money to buy groceries, to pay the mortgage, let alone have any money to buy Christmas gifts for the kids. And I remember beginning of that month, I just came to the Lord in all sincerity and just poured my heart out and said, Lord, you promised to take care of us. Father, we need money to pay the mortgage. We need money to put food on the table. And Father, I know you haven't promised to provide extra things like Christmas gifts. You've promised to provide the, uh, the necessities. But Father, you're such a gracious God. Could you find it in your heart to provide some Christmas gifts for the kids? I forgot how the Lord did it. I should have actually written it down. It was pretty remarkable. But I remember standing a few days before the end of the month, maybe the 28th of December, looking back. God had not only taken care of all of our physical needs, he had provided money to buy the kids Christmas gifts. We even had a little money left over in the bank. It was God's way of reminding me, I'm still on the throne. I made you a promise, didn't I? I told you I'd take care of you. I fully intend to keep that promise. And when things look really black, that's just me showing you that I can overcome any obstacle, any hurdle. So we need to remember that when things look pretty bleak. Now, let's spend the rest of our time this morning looking at Mary and Joseph since, you know, they're pivotal, so pivotal to the story of Christmas. I mean, we've talked about them, but let's look more closely at them. And we're going to read a couple of scriptures that dovetail with, we've already read them, no doubt, at other times in this series. But um, first of all, I want to look at God's announcement to Mary. Turn to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? I'm a virgin. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, also has conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be 
impossible. What do we know about Mary? Well, we know she was a Jewess of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, and a virgin. We know she was engaged to a carpenter in Nazareth named Joseph. We also know from the other Gospels that apparently they were both poor. They were not wealthy people, both pretty poor. It's possible that both Mary and Joseph were quite young when they were betrothed. Girls in that culture were often betrothed to a husband uh, at the age of 13 or 14. Boys maybe a little older, 15 or 16. Uh, according to Jewish custom, a Jewish betrothal is a lot more involved than we would think of as an engagement in our society. Okay, uh, A Hebrew marriage involved two stages, the kedushin, the betrothal, and then the chuppah, or the marriage ceremony. The marriage was almost always arranged by the families of the two, sometimes, uh, even before the kids were born. If you had a close family that you were very, you know, best friends with, often they would say to each other, look, uh, if you have a boy and I have a girl, someday let's marry them together, or vice versa, you know. And so sometimes, even before the kids were born, their parents had, you know, promised them to a child or a son or daughter of another family. Uh, this was quite common back then. And uh, when the time came, a contract was made, and it was sealed by a payment known as a mohar, which was the dowry, or also known as the bride price. It was really a, a price paid by the groom or his family to the, to the bride's father. Uh, this helped him to kind of recoup some of the expense of the marriage ceremony. It's a big celebration, okay? Uh, you know, kind of costly. But also, this uh, bride price... Uh, provided a type of insurance for the bride. It was kind of like alimony uh, in advance, uh, in the event that the groom became dissatisfied with his new bride. And believe me, it didn't take much. These ladies had no recourse. The guys could divorce them for any reason. The women couldn't divorce their husbands for any reason. They could leave, couldn't legally divorce them. And so, you know, if he found something that upset him about her, he could give her a certificate of divorce send her on her way, well, she'd go back to her father's house, and the money that was paid the dowry was then used to support her until she could find another husband. But uh, the contract was considered binding and in force as soon as it was made. And at that point, and the bride price was paid, at that point, uh, the man and woman were considered legally married, even though the marriage ceremony, the hoopah, and the consummation of the marriage often didn't occur until sometimes a year down the road. You say, why'd they wait so long? Because after the contract was signed, the bride price was paid, and they were legally married. Then it was the responsibility of the husband to go to his father's house and make uh, a, a bridal chamber or an apartment, basically. He would just add on to his father's house a room, because that's where his inheritance was. He would build a room, which was a, an apartment, and uh, that would take several months, sometimes even a year. And after he was finished, he would then go get his bride, and he would, they would celebrate, all the families would celebrate the, uh, the hoopah, the, the official marriage ceremony, and then the, he took his bride into the bridal chamber, and the marriage was consummated. That's how they did it, okay? So with that as a background, how old do we think Mary was at this time? I think she was a teenager. And uh, given the maturity, this, this young gal was very mature. Given the maturity uh, that Mary demonstrates, the way she handles this incredible encounter with this angel, Gabriel. I mean, the way she handles herself to me is remarkable. I have to believe that she was no less than 16 years old. No less than 16 years old. 
And I think Mary's response to the angel, when the angel said, you've been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah, and so on and so forth, I think Mary's response to the angel is one of the truly beautiful things about the whole Christmas story. Mary said in verse 38, she said, the angel Gabriel says, you've been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. He's going to put in your womb the very seed of God, the Son of God. You will be a virgin still. Think about what he's saying to her. And what does she say? Are you out of your mind? No. She says, behold, here I am, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I mean, think about the trust that this took on the part of Mary. Trust in God. Especially when you realize that she's agreeing to a, sus a suspicious pregnancy in a society that had a death penalty for adultery. At very least, she risked losing Joseph, the man she loved. Did Mary fully comprehend at that moment all the implications of what the angel was saying to her? I don't think so, but she was going to find out in the weeks and months to follow. For this blessing, guys, would not be without cost. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, had this to say concerning Mary, and I quote, Often a work of God comes with two edges, great joy and great pain. And in that matter-of-fact response, Mary embraced both. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of the personal cost, end quote. And guys, cost Mary, it did. It cost her her reputation. One author said if she had been living in Puritan times, she would have ever had to carry the letter A on her clothing. Another author had this to say, he said, and I quote, We all dream of being used by God for some great work for his glory. And we fancy ourselves like Mary saying, Behold the servant of the Lord, not realizing that it's often a two-edged sword in that the greatest blessings, listen, often go hand in hand with the deepest sorrows, end quote. And yet, guys, that's exactly the cross that Jesus Christ commands all of us to take up if we're going to follow him and truly be one of his disciples. Full surrender, regardless of the cost. And that's what Mary is demonstrating right here. Now, that was God's announcement to Mary. How about God's pronouncement to Joseph? Turn to Matthew chapter 1. And let's pick it up in verse 18. Again, very familiar territory. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away secretly. So verse 18 tells us that during this betrothal period, before Joseph and Mary consummated their marriage, she was found to be pregnant. Now we know from the gospel she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't know that initially. Okay, All he knows is the woman he loves, the woman he's betrothed to, or is betrothed to him, they haven't come together yet. The marriage has not been consummated. Um, so he has not been with her physically, and yet she's pregnant. So what's he supposed to think? She's had an affair on him. She's been unfaithful. And even after Mary told him what had happened, even then Joseph still didn't believe it. I mean, do you blame him? Guys, put yourself in his sandals, okay? I mean, what would you have thought if your fiancé came to you pregnant? but told you, don't worry, I'm still a virgin. 
It's, it's God. God did it. And, and I'm carrying the Son of God. What do you think, Joseph? What, what, what would you have thought? Nobody touched me. It was all God. Again, one author put it this way, said, and I quote, Can you think of a greater test of a man's love for a woman? On the one hand, he might have imagined the wicked tryst with another man, but this was not the Mary that Joseph knew and loved. On the other hand, how could he really believe the story she told him about the angelic announcement? Joseph didn't know what to think. His heart was broken, his plans ruined, his pride bruised, but he still loved this Hebrew maiden, end quote. In fact, guys, he loved her so much that he didn't demand his rights. He didn't seek revenge. You see, in uh, Jewish law, if uh, a, a woman was uh, un unfaithful to her husband, she was an adulteress, uh, you could bring formal charges against her. You could bring her to the city fathers, make a, a public or a formal charge against her, and the law said she would then be taken uh, to a place and she would be stoned by the whole community till she was dead. Joseph could have done that. If he was a, had been a vindictive man, a proud man, he probably would have. But he was a just man. He was a good guy. And loved Mary. Didn't want to make a public deal out of this. Didn't want her stoned. So he decided just to put her away privately. Not have her stoned. Not bring formal charges. Again, we go on to read in Matthew 1, verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As we've already pointed out, the name Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the word Yeshua, which is short for Jehovah Shua, which literally means Jehovah is salvation. So Jesus means Jehovah saves, basically. Now, when Jesus was first born into this world, Rome was in power. And guys, Rome ruled the world with an iron fist. Now, for most people, this wasn't a problem because Rome brought a lot of good things into society. Uh, first of all, they brought a lot of stability. They were so strong, nobody dared mess with them. Uh, criminals were dealt with so harshly, crime was greatly reduced. They built roads everywhere that led from Rome all over the known world, or the empire, uh, which allowed uh, merchants to travel these roads. Commerce came into the area, or the empire. Salaries went up. I mean, people lived a good life under Roman rule. And it was also not a problem if you were one who wanted to worship any particular god, because the Romans were very polytheistic. They didn't really care what god you worshipped, or gods. As long as every year you stood before a bust of Caesar and put a pinch of incense in a flame that was, that was lit before the bust and pledged your allegiance to Caesar as Lord, Caesar is my number one God, then you could worship any other God you wanted to. But see, for the Jews who were fiercely monotheistic and the people of the true and living God, this was absolutely unacceptable. Not to mention to pay taxes to Rome, which amounted to tribute. You see, in the Jewish mind, you only paid tribute to God. So they greatly resented the fact that they had to pay taxes to the Roman government. Not to mention the fact that these pagans were controlling their land, telling them what to do, and so on. For most Jews, it was more than they could 
bearer. You have to understand, all of this um, hatred for the Roman Empire, the Roman government, was coupled with a burning messianic hope. You see, ever since the time the Jews were little children, they were taught that when Messiah came, he would lead them in a revolt against whatever power, whatever nation was in power at that time, at this time be Rome, and he would overthrow the Roman government, drive them out of the land of Israel, and the Messiah would establish a kingdom that would cover the entire earth, and he would rule over that kingdom from Jerusalem physically. That was their hope. That's what they were waiting for. But guys, understand this as we kind of wrap this up. They were looking for a political Messiah, a political Messiah who would bring a political kingdom with material blessings. That's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for a Messiah who would save them from their sins, who would bring a kingdom of righteousness. No. They wanted a Messiah that would bless their lives on a material, physical level. Not a Messiah who would actually mess with their sinful lifestyles. As long as he comes and gives me all the goodies. And that's what they believed. Messiah's going to come. We're not going to have to work anymore. We won't be sick anymore. He's going to take care of us, give us everything. We won't even have to work anymore. Sounds kind of like today. Many people have turned the government into God. And, uh, you know, they expect the government to take care of them from cradle to grave. As long as Messiah came to bring a political kingdom of uh, material prosperity, they were more than happy to line up to support this Messiah. You start talking about a Messiah that wants to deal with the sin in my life, oh, that I don't want. And that's why Jesus was ultimately rejected by the Jewish people. Because he was a Messiah who came to save them from their sins. Guys, let me just say this to you. The greatest problem facing the human race isn't Islamic fundamentalism. It isn't global warming. It isn't world hunger or disease. Or if you're American, an American, it isn't even the economy. The greatest problem facing the human race is and always has been the problem of sin. Always has been. And before God can save a person from this present evil world system and allow them to live with him in a glorious kingdom someday, a paradise, guess what? He first has to save them from their sins. That's why Jesus came. That's what he came the first time to do. He came to save us from our sins. And ultimately, that means to save us from the consequences of sin, to save us from hell. Now, when he comes to the earth the second time, and I believe he's coming soon. When he comes to the earth the second time, at his second coming, he is going to save us. He will be a political Messiah. He will come to save us from corruption and greed and um, all the violence and the injustice and all the things that we look at the world and go, wow, this is horrible. And rightly so it is. When he comes, he's going to save us from bad circumstances and problems by establishing his kingdom upon the earth, a kingdom that we will live in forever, a paradise, with him reigning over the entire world. But guys, listen, first things first. If you want to be a member of God's kingdom in heaven someday, then the issue of sin has to be dealt with in your life right now. Right now. If you're not right with God this morning, if you have not made a commitment to Jesus Christ, making him the king of your life right now, you'll never be a member of his political or outward kingdom someday. 
The issue is all sin is always the first step. Jesus came to save us from our sins. He'll come again to save us from our circumstances the second time he comes. But right now, first things first. Someone has written these words, and I think they're very appropriate. Let me close with them. If our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been for technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been for money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. And guys, that now sets the stage for the culmination of the story of Christmas. So come back at noon Christmas Day, and let's finish this series, and let's see from the Bible's perspective the culmination of this incredible story. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace, your mercies, Lord, which I knew every morning, of course. Father, we thank you that in a world of darkness and sin, our Savior came to save us from our sins the first time. He is coming again to save us from the corruption of an evil world system where the God of this world, the devil, has corrupted the minds of many, where rebellion is, Lord, everywhere. The darkness is very intense. But Lord Jesus, we know you're coming back again soon to establish your kingdom. We wait for that day. Until then, Lord, give us grace to understand that we need to be a light in this world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Give us grace, Lord, to live as children of light, keeping our eyes on the sky. At any moment, the angel might shout, the trumpet might blow, and we might hear our Savior say, come up here. And when we open our eyes, we will be in the air, in the clouds, face to face with our Savior. And at that point, we will never be separated from Him ever again. And we wait for that day, Lord. The story of Christmas is truly an incredible story of your love for this fallen world. Give us grace, Lord, not to take it for granted or lose the significance of all that it means. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.